Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. Sunday afternoon, in our house, we were preparing for the closing days of Passover. I was in the kitchen cooking, and my kids were playing some board games, and the Elite Eight game was on behind us. I was just looking over every once in a while to catch the score and see a play or two. And I just happened to be watching as a sophomore from Louisville went to block a three-point shot from a Duke player. And this sophomore named Kevin Ware jumped into the air, landed funny on his leg, and had a compound fracture, the kind that breaks right in half of his leg sticking right through his skin. It was a horrible moment to watch. It reminded me of my childhood when I used to stay up on Monday nights to catch football and Joe Theismann was sacked by Lawrence Taylor in a very similar situation. But I was taken by something that I didn't appreciate in my childhood that perhaps my adult life has given me and perhaps my role in the rabbinate has given me and some of my contemplation of bigger issues in life gave me. Kevin Ware plays for Louisville, and they were fighting for their life to continue to the Final Four against a team that is also just as good, just as strong, with an incredible coach, with a legacy of a fantastic basketball program in Duke. And on the court, they were warriors. They would box each other out, not gently and not gingerly, but with force and might. Within the letter of the rules of the game, but there was nothing soft or ginger about the way they played on the game, the way they played on the court. It was fierce. They were determined to win. But when Ware went down, his teammates cried in pain. They cried in seeing the gruesomeness of the injury that had happened to him. His coach had cried because I think his coach was sad to see his players all hurt this way and to know that this young man's career could be in jeopardy from such a serious break and what it was doing to his entire team as they were playing for such a critical game. But what captured me were the Duke players and the Duke coaches. The Duke sports training team, the ones that look after the health of the Duke players, immediately went over and started to help assist the Louisville sports training team and taking care of the triage for Kevin Ware. But the players from Duke, while they were waiting for his leg to be wrapped and bandaged before he was taken to the hospital for surgery, were just as reflective. They were just as contemplative. They were pained also. And for that moment and for a few minutes after, the whistle went again and they started the game They were not warriors. They just weren't. They were humans who loved the sport. They just wanted to play ball. And they couldn't take any delight or any satisfaction in the opposing team, if you'll excuse the phrase, the enemy, being hurt, being pained, seeing them go down. They didn't get into a huddle and say, this is how we're going to play now that Ware is out of the game. Their hearts broke. And they were collectively sad. 
Because when you see a player go down with that level of injury, it is not humanly possible, I would argue, to not feel that pain. And I'm not talking about the physical pain. I'm talking about the emotional pain. The emotional pain of seeing another who could just as easily have been any of us, any of them on the court, go through that process. That is what captured me in that painful and horrific moment in that game between Louisville and Duke. As almost to say when they started dribbling the ball again after Ware was whisked off in an ambulance. It really didn't even matter who won or lost. Now obviously it's going to matter and we have very short-term memories. But for those first few minutes, right after that injury, those players had a different look in their eyes. They had a different feeling about them. A few months ago, I, um, I did something that I'm not really proud of. It's something that um, I'm not sharing with you because I want to expose myself to the congregation or tell you what a colossal mess up I am. It was a mistake. I was asked uh, six, eight months ago if I would help a couple from Israel who were of the same sex, who were in love with each other, and who were married legally in Canada, but lived in Israel and were Israeli, if I would help them because they were in the process of adopting a child through surrogacy here in the United States. And they knew that once the adoption would go through and the surrogate would indeed bear the child that they were paying for and waiting for, that the child needed to have an official Jewish conversion in order to come back into Israel because Israel is kind of interesting and unique. It will recognize marriages from outside the country, even same-sex marriages, but it will not recognize the child as Jewish unless within the country unless they are converted outside of the country. Just one of the strained legislative pieces of Israel we can talk about at a different time. So sure enough, the baby is born. I tell them we have to wait four weeks till after the baby's born to immerse the baby in the mikvah. I never met this couple in my life. I talked to them on the phone once. I dealt with someone who lived in the States who was related to them. I went to the mikvah. I called two other friends to serve as the witness. And I was totally captured in a way I didn't plan to be. Two men who I'd never met in my life, who knew each other and each other's rhythms, each other's feelings, had deep visible love for each other who had now fallen in love as well with this new person in their lives, this new baby. And one of them put on a bathing suit and brought this naked, four-week-old innocent baby into a mikvah, dipped her in. We said the necessary blessings and now, according to Jewish law and according to the documents with it, this child was Jewish. We did this on a Thursday. But here was my mistake. I said to the couple, come to synagogue the day after tomorrow on Shabbat morning and I'm going to give you a blessing on your child receiving their Hebrew name and being part of our tradition. And I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't call the president of the synagogue. I didn't call the officer. I didn't talk to past presidents. I didn't seek counsel from any of my consulieries in the community or other rabbis. 
just did it. Not proud of that. I shouldn't have done that. If I had it to do all over again, I'd probably follow the proper channels. It was a stupid thing to do. But my intuition was telling me to do it. My intuition was telling me to do it not because I thought that the president or the officers or others were going to vehemently oppose what I was doing, but that I didn't want process. I didn't want people concerned or worried or on their toes. I wanted to blindside people. And that's exactly what I did, for better or for worse. I blindsided them. Without telling anyone except the cancer a few minutes into the service when this was going to happen, I invited the couple up and said, we're having a baby naming. And there stood two men from Israel holding their child. And people in the congregation looked differently than as they would if they were opposite-sex parents. We blessed them, and the whole synagogue joined in beautiful song and celebration, showering their love towards this couple. And as a whole, it was well-received. There were some in the shul who thought it wasn't the right move, but I would say most thought it was beautiful and were proud to be part of a synagogue that had this. I want to be clear. My mistake that I feel I made was not the mistake in giving them the blessing, but in not following the proper channels before doing so. Now, I share all of this with you for this reason. This is an important reason. There were five souls who will remain nameless, who came up to me separately after services and basically said, if I were to distill all of the comments, basically said the same thing and this was it. Rabbi, I have passionate views towards homosexuality. I have visceral views based on my tradition, my religion, my background, and my upbringing. But seeing what I saw today, being witness to it, having it in my face, and seeing the unquestionable love between these two people and the love they had for this child has caused me to think. They didn't say they changed their mind. They didn't say they turned 180 degrees. It said it caused them to think. And that was the goal I was after. Because were I were to make process and announcements and board discussions and we were to just all know that this is the week it was happening, some might choose to not come to shul, some might talk about it with their neighbors. How many people would tune in if you knew at a certain time in the game Kevin Ware was going to gruesomely break his leg? How many people would play the game the same way if you knew in the second quarter that this guy was going to go down and it would change the strategy and the way that each player on both sides of the court we're going to play. But when people were faced with a situation, literally in their face, it caused them to feel something that they otherwise might not have ever felt. And all, literally, because of its imminence. Lawrence Taylor will tell you he never played football the same. He still played hard. But he never played football the same after he sacked Joe Theismann that day and snapped back his leg. Never. Now, there are lots of people in the history of football who saw that play, but only a few who actually heard his leg snap and only a few who actually saw it. And I argue that the people who saw it and the people that were there, they were changed by it. But from afar, 
you're not nearly as changed by it. A little over two weeks ago, a conservative senator from Ohio named Rob Portman, who had traditionally taken very conservative right-wing views on a host of issues, including gay marriage and integration of gay Americans into the workforce and leadership roles, had come out publicly and said that he had changed his heart and his mind on these issues because his son had come out to him and announced that he was indeed a homosexual American. Portman said that in realizing the love that he had for his son and the love that he had in knowing who his son was and what his values were made him change his mind on this critical thought process. And as a result, he was going to vote the way that many other Democrats and few other Republicans were voting in favor of changing the Defense of Marriage Act. But what made him change his mind was the imminence, literally in front of him, seeing someone he knew and inherently loved and respected and cared for, who said to him, I am your son. Love is unquestionable. And I am a gay American. And it forced him to rethink who he was and what he was about. And that's why Harvey Milk of Blessed Memory, the council person from San Francisco, a Jewish man, insisted in a time where it wasn't common, popular, or well-received for any and everyone he knew who happened to be gay to come out to their loved ones. He said to do it because once people knew someone who was gay, it would change their views on homosexuality as opposed to being able to hate or be ineffectual from afar. That up close, you must feel differently. That it's easy to hate from afar, but near, you can't. And if you ever want to believe that, ask any soldier on any front lines who has enemies on the other side of the barrel of the gun, who might have had to pull the trigger and shoot someone they don't know, and perhaps even, God forbid, a child, a woman, a defenseless person. And while they know they were defending their country and they know that it might be right according to the Geneva Conventions and all legal parameters, they still are torn apart inside and out because they saw the face of someone that they took the life away from. That imminence and the closeness of another changes us. That it has to. And if it doesn't, then we're not really human. Just, uh, just after Rob Portman changed his heart, we know that Edie Windsor who was married to Thea Spizer, both residents of New York, two gay Americans who found love in each other, went to Canada where same-sex marriages could happen and were legally married, and had their union represented in many other districts and in states, that Thea predeceased Edie and left her her fortune, all of her money, 
as most of us have set up in same-sex marriages through wills, trusts, and testaments that we have established. And in doing so, because they were of the same sex, Edie was penalized and forced to pay $364,000 in government taxes that if she were married to someone of an opposite sex, she would never have had to pay. Now, you might be asking yourselves, why is the rabbi talking about all of this today? Is this him and his political aspirations just using the bully pulpit to talk about what his stance would be if he decides to run for office one day? The answer to that is unequivocally no. The answer to that question that you might be asking is that I think Judaism doesn't only suggest, but I would argue Judaism demands of us how it is that we should respond to this issue happening in our world. Because ultimately, Judaism is not about something that lives in a silo or something that lives in a vacuum. It's about a part of life, a way of life, a value system of life, morals and ethics incorporated into life that have application in the world in which we live in. Judaism is not exclusive of the world. It is blended into the world that we are a part of every day. And when laws come to the surface, whether in our municipality, in our state, or in our country, sometimes the discussion comes to the table of where we can blend our views on what the law is dictating and what Judaism requires of us. And I would tell you that Judaism requires of us to dissolve this act, the Defense of Marriage Act, to change it to a new law, a law that tells us that it's love that prevails, and that who is any one person to tell us that love can only exist if our chromosomes are different? That otherwise, if our chromosomes are the same, love can't be the same. Is that the way God created us? Didn't we read in the book of Genesis, isn't it central to the tenets of our theology and our faith, that we are all created in God's image? That God is loved by all of us and that we have the ability to love also? And don't all of us realize that none of us choose our sexual orientation? Just the same way I don't choose the color of my hair or the color of my eyes or my height. I can augment it. I can chemically change it. But it's not sincere and authentic. And how dare we demand of anyone that they should be insincere for our sake and not for theirs. And that's why I would argue that Judaism doesn't suggest something here, but Judaism demands something here. Judaism demands of us that we need to recognize and celebrate love at its core. Not particular chromosomal love, but all love. That is a Jewish value. That is a Jewish responsibility. For if we don't, then I would argue we've transgressed Judaism. Now, we might have some brothers and sisters who are in other synagogues down the street who don't agree with me. That's fine. They're not going to agree with me on lots of things. And that's what makes the world go round. But on this issue, in this synagogue, in my opinion, for those who are solicitous of it, and in my writings, and in my value system, 
and the way I want to project the Jew that I want to be and I want others to follow. I wouldn't suggest this law like I suggested vis-a-vis Kashrut a few minutes ago. I would demand it. For if we don't, we are transgressing. And just as I would be offended when I would go out to a restaurant with any congregant and they would choose to eat a bacon cheeseburger in front of me, I might say nothing, but that would be their choice. I would have the same offense were someone to say that love is not permitted. That's an equal, if not worse, more egregious transgression to me because we're all created by God. The the entire book, the whole book of Leviticus is dedicated to the notion of sacrifice and the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And there have been volumes upon volumes written on the details of the sacrifices, the purpose of the Mishkan, what a synagogue must look like, what has to be in it, where the menorah is placed, where the show offering is, all of these details. But they're all missing one important point. That makes everything else meaningless. The purpose of the Mishkan is the exact purpose of what we're doing here right now. And that is to commune. It's coming together. It's literally sitting next to and being close to people. And it's why my predecessor, a blessed memory, Arthur Hertzberg, insisted that we are a family that doesn't only daven together, but we eat kiddush together. And he valued kiddush. And he didn't value it because of the tuna fish. He valued it because it was a time for people to sit next to their neighbor and to see them as more than the guy in shul. To see them for the profession that they made their living at. To see them for the struggles they had in their relationships or with their children or their passions or their beliefs and to know that you could love them beyond difference. And if we were all tuned into this service via satellite or logged on through some web component, you could hear the same words. You'd be impressed by how Jesse read the Haftarah. But you wouldn't have the imminence. You wouldn't have it in front of you. And what Edie Windsor did when she stood at the footsteps of the Supreme Court is she put a face and a name to this challenge and this struggle. No differently than Harvey Milk did and no differently than he encouraged every other person of a different sexual orientation than heterosexual to do when he encouraged them to come out. He made it real and imminent. That's exactly, exactly what we did on that Shabbat a few months ago. And while different, it's exactly what Kevin Ware did unintentionally on the basketball court. He evoked an emotion that one doesn't think of during the game. And that's empathy and compassion. Something bigger that transcends us. Isn't that the definition of Judaism? Empathy and compassion? Something bigger that transcends us? If that isn't the definition of Judaism, then I don't want to be Jewish. I hope that you find that your definition too. And every day you strive to make that a part of your life. May we live in a day where we see the beauty in every human being, regardless of their color, regardless of their gender, regardless of their belief, and regardless of their orientation. And each day we do that, may we find ourselves as better people and better Jews in doing so. Amen.
We continue our